Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders Podcast. Thanks for joining us this morning. Today we're going to finish up our series on Romans with a study of Romans 12 through 15. My name is David Flatt and I'm one of the teachers in the Bridge Builders class and I'll be teaching our class this morning. Again, thanks for joining so much and I hope uh, that together we can learn something from these powerful chapters. So good morning and welcome to class. I'm, I'm glad that you're uh, here this morning. So um, like I said, we're going to finish up Romans today. We've been in it. For, this is our fifth week. Uh, the first week we did an introduction and then we divided Romans up into kind of what these guys at the Bible Project divide, call the four movements of Romans. So one through four and then five through eight, then nine through 11, and then we'll finish today with 12 through 16. So why don't we just kind of go ahead and jump in and uh, we'll kind of see where this goes. So let's just talk about, you know, what is the book of Romans about? I thought maybe we'd spend three or four minutes kind of on intro to kind of catch everybody up, make sure we're on the same, uh, in the same place, because kind of how does he finish this letter doesn't really make sense if we kind of don't understand the context. Um, N.T. Wright, who's a, a, a Christian author and academic, has meant a lot to me, but he said something that I think is really helpful, um, talking about reading Scripture. And so he points out... Uh, how almost everyone reads scripture, in, including me, which is we read it for like five or ten minutes at a time, right? You kind of do it in your devotional. And that's healthy. I mean, I, I would encourage us all to you know, carve out a few minutes in your morning or before you go to bed or whatever it is you want to do and read. But that's not the way scripture was written, right? So Romans, Paul didn't write like Romans 8 and send it as like an encouraging devotional for the church. Although it can be that. I'm not you know, demeaning that if you've used it in that way. I, I have. Um, but at some, time, at some point, we ought to read Scripture the way it was written. So Romans was a letter read in one setting to the church in Rome. And so I'd encourage you, you know, maybe instead of hopping on Twitter this afternoon or watching a movie or whatever, it takes just under an hour to read Romans start to finish. And I think we ought to do that at some time in our life because the end of Romans really only makes the most sense in the context of the, the previous 11 chapters, right? Paul's making uh, an argument, so to speak, kind of a... A testament to what the gospel is and how we ought to live it out. And so the first part of Romans is what is the gospel? And then he talks about how what like Holy Spirit living is. And then the end of the book is kind of the, the implications of that. So that this is true, now this is how you should live. And so I think seeing it that way can be really helpful. All that being said, a lot of people a lot smarter than me says that uh, this verse is kind of a synopsis of Romans. So um, we've talked a lot in, during this series about like how great Paul is and how much respect we have for him. And he's just he's really a, a first-rate, not just kind of preacher or Christian writer, but a, a first-rate academic, a theologian, a philosopher. And so I think your high school or college English teacher would be proud of him. He has a thesis sentence at the beginning of his letter. I mean, he kind of s- summarizes the letter. So here's Romans 1.16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So that's kind of the first four chapters of Romans. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is a lot of things, but if someone's preaching the gospel and they're not talking about the power of God for salvation for people who have faith in Christ, that's, that's not the gospel Paul's teaching here in Romans. Okay, so that's the first four chapters. He's not ashamed of the gospel. And then he talks about to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Grant did a great job last week dealing with what I think are probably the three most difficult, theologically difficult chapters in the whole Bible, Romans 9 through 11. 
it's really kind of strange and confusing. I think it's almost impossible to understand those chapters without kind of reading them in context. But those chapters are basically answering kind of this phrase here, because God made these promises to Israel, right? And But now, at the, the full revelation of the gospel, the truth is, is known that we're saved through Christ. So how does that make sense to Israel? And so Paul's kind of referencing that here. To, the Jews are saved first, but also to the Greeks. So again here, this is one of the moments I wish that I had like a, a formal theological education, but apparently people who do say this word Greek here is, is really uh, kind of has a connotation of non-Jew. So basically Paul's saying here, salvation is for the whole world. It's for Jews and for non-Jews. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So we talk about that real quick. The righteousness of God. I think Paul here probably means two things. One is God's trueness to his character. So God is going to be faithful to his justice and his love. He's faithful to his justice because he punishes sin, Jesus on the cross. He's faithful to his love because he, he saves sinners. So God is righteous. He's true. And then that truth is being revealed and is given to us. The righteousness of God is given to, is given to those from faith for faith. Or um, apparently the, the Greek kind of has a, it's a, um, like a, a, a phrase that means kind of faith from first to last. I think some translations even translate it that way. But um, so the, this righteousness of God, this trueness of God, this salvation, free, freedom from sin is given by faith for faith because the righteous shall live by faith. So in kind of one sentence there is, is a lot, and that's kind of the whole message of Romans, which we're going to try to wrap up this morning. Okay, so if you've got that, um, if you've got that poster in front of you, if you want to look real quick, and then I'll be done kind of summarizing the whole context of Romans, we'll talk about 12 through 16. You see here, um, these guys put four columns. So on the far left, you have Romans 1 through 4. That's the first movement. Then you have Romans 5 through 8. That's the second movement. Then Romans 9 through 11 is the third movement. Then Romans 12 through 16, which is the fourth movement. So there's four movements there. I just wanted to kind of talk about maybe what the point is in each of these movements. And you can see at the top of each column, um, they actually kind of wrote in what's happening there. So the gospel in 1 through 4, reveals God's righteousness. So this is God's trueness. God's going to be true to His justice. He's going to be true to His love. And then He's going to give us His righteousness. So as sinners, we receive the righteousness of God. We are free from sin, just like God is free from sin through Jesus. And that's the point of 1 through 4. So kind of what I would say the heart of what the gospel is, the fact that we're separated from God through sin, the fact that through faith in Christ we can be cleansed, from our sin and be in relationship with Christ, that's really in Romans 1 through 4. And that's the point of that part of the book. But again, Paul's writing a letter, right? The whole thing's important. We don't just stop at 1 through 4 because Paul's going to teach theology, but then he's going to talk about the implications of that. So now, how do we live? Uh, this is Romans 5 through 8. So this is the idea that, like, uh, through Jesus, God has created a new humanity. So you remember Kyle talked about where um, all humans come from the first Adam. So we're biologically related in our nature from the first Adam. But God's created a new humanity through the second Adam, Jesus. So our new humanity comes from a different origin and is supernatural and and creates unity um, within us as Christians. And so through that new humanity, God created the multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-language community of God, Christians, right? And so that's what's going on in 5 through 8. Then in uh, 9 through 11, Paul deals with this question about God's promises to Israel. So God promises Israel that they will be saved 
but Paul's saying that you're saved through Christ. And so there's some tension there. I think Grant did a, a good job of kind of laying that out and walking through it. Um, I don't want to kind of get in the, the deep end this morning. Christians disagree on exactly kind of how that plays out, but that's, that's the tension that Paul's dealing with. And essentially Paul says that all Israel will be saved. And um, it's really a beautiful and complex argument, but I think it was worth our time last week. And then this week we'll talk about Paul, uh, Paul's emphasis on that the gospel unifies the church. So all of Paul's letters kind of have a similar structure the first half of the letter is almost always kind of basic Christian theology. So he's teaching some truth. The second half of the letter is almost always behavior, application. So because this is true, this is how you should live. So almost every letter goes that way. Galatians runs that way. The Corinthian letters run that way. Romans definitely runs that way. Another big theme that always shows up is this idea of unity. So Paul is obsessed with unity, of the church being together, the church being unified. And uh, I think today well, there's some challenges to unity in the church, uh, just like in every era. We're not unique in that. But we, I mean, we, I don't want to go around the room and say, what makes you feel disunified from the person sitting next to you? But we all know what they are, right? There's things in our culture, in our political climate, in um, kind of our, our social world, in the economic world. There's things that that encourage us to not be united. And so the, the situation was not different at all in Paul's context, right? He's dealing really with this ethnic divisions within the church. Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians have um, fleshly human reasons to distrust each other and to struggle getting along. So in almost every letter Paul writes to a church, he spends a chapter or two saying, the gospel is more important than these earthly things that are dividing you and separating you and causing division. And so that's no different here. Paul's going to spend some time uh, making that argument in Romans uh, 12 through 16. So let's watch the video uh, that these guys made. I think it's really well done. It's only like two and a half minutes because we're just going to watch the part for Romans 12 through 16. And then we'll talk about each chapter. 12 to 13, he shows that this unity will come from a commitment to love and forgive each other. Love will look like everybody using their diverse gifts and talents to serve one another in the church. And it will also mean humility and forgiveness. When these different ethnic groups and cultures come together in Jesus, conflict is inevitable, and it can only be overcome through the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation. This is how they will show the greatest of Christian virtues, love, which fulfills the Torah's greatest commands to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In chapters 14 and 15, he focuses specifically on the issues that are creating ethnic divisions in the Roman church. These are disputes about the Jewish food laws and the Sabbath. And Paul says these practices don't define who's in or out of Jesus' family. And if people differ over these culturally important but non-essential issues, they need to learn how to respect each other's differences. And it's in this way that love will heal and unify Jesus' family. 
Paul closes the letter by first commending Phoebe, who's a key leader in the church of Cancre. She had the honor of carrying and perhaps even reading this letter aloud to the Roman churches for the first time. Paul then concludes by greeting all the people that he hasn't seen for a long time, and that, the end. Whoa. You can see better now how all the pieces of this letter fit together and show what a profound masterpiece it truly is. That's what the letter to the Romans is all about. All right, so that's Romans 12 through 16. I really think it's a good thing to do. Go to thebibleproject.com, watch the whole Romans video. It's about 12 minutes beginning to end, and then read all of Romans. If you can carve out, that would be tough with kids and stuff in the afternoon, but if you can carve out an hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes, I think that would really be a cool spiritual exercise uh, to, to kind of see all of Paul's argument and let its beauty kind of flow over you as you read it and kind of see it all in context at once. But that's obviously not what we're going to do. Um, this morning, we're going to walk uh, chapter by chapter and kind of um, give a 50,000-foot view as if we're in an airplane. Hey, we're flying over Romans 12. What's something good to pick out? Uh, that's, a, you know, that's a nice swimming pool right there. That's a good point, uh, good truth. Okay, now let's go to Romans 13 and 14. Um, so I, just, I, I, don't wanna, I don't think I can say enough. You should go back and read it. This is really great stuff. Uh, with that being said, uh, we're going to just do these chapters and try to do them pretty quickly this morning. So Romans 12. A lot of people, if Romans 8 is not their favorite chapter, maybe in the whole Bible, but definitely in Romans, and they would say Romans 12 is their favorite chapter. Some of my favorite people say Romans 12 is the best chapter in the whole Bible. And I think there's a good reason for that. This is really, um, as they say, like Paul was on his game this day. Like whenever he was sitting down doing Romans 12, um, this is good stuff. So and with each chapter, I want to talk about uh, what, what is the key point of the chapter that Paul's trying to get across. Then we'll talk about um, the key verse, what I think... Of course, this is all just my opinion, but a verse I picked out said, hey, this seems especially kind of meaningful for the argument Paul's trying to make. And then what's a, like a gospel truth? What's like the truth um, that you kind of tuck away, bury in your heart, that's going to transform us into a gospel community? So let's talk about uh, Romans 12. So um, the key point is really in the first verse. So it's the idea that we worship God by offering your life as a living sacrifice. So it's been said the problem... So a dead sacrifice doesn't pose that much of like a logistical problem, right? Because a dead sacrifice, you, you kill the animal, you put it on the altar, you set it on fire, you pray for forgiveness, right? That's kind of, it's a little more complicated than that, obviously, but that's basically Old Testament law, kind of how sins were dealt with. This, this is not my metaphor, but I think it's helpful. The problem with a living sacrifice, which is what God calls us to be, is we can jump off the altar, right? We're alive, so we don't, we don't necessarily stay in a position of wanting to sacrifice our life for what God's called us to do. But staying on the altar and living a life of sacrifice for something bigger than ourselves, that is what Paul calls worship, right? That, that's worship, which is interesting, right? Because we tend to have all these, uh, maybe what like the newspaper would call like worship wars, right? We argue about how old the songs can we sing? Who can clap? Who can raise their hands? Praise team on the stage, off the stage. I'm not, I'm not mean to say like none of that's important. I have opinions just like almost everything else in the world. I have opinions about all those things. But we shouldn't miss the forest through the trees, right? Worship is, how we, is not only how and when we sing, but how we live. So worship is a, an orientation and lifestyle that you're going to live a sacrificial life for the gospel, something bigger than yourself. And along with that comes this connotation of it's a voluntary exercise, a choice that you have to make. You can jump off the altar and choose to live selfishly, 
right? But our spiritual act of worship is to stay on the altar and, and tomorrow morning to live in a sacrificial position for your children, for your family, for your church, for the world, for the sake of Jesus. So here's the verse that says kind of what I just tried to say better than I can say it. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So I've already kind of talked about the first part of the verse. I want to talk about the second part of the verse for our gospel truth. So the gospel truth here is do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So there's a temptation in every age to um, become identical to the culture around you, right? Whether it's in the office, whether it's at home, whether it's in the church, whether it's with your social group or whatever. So the human nature is to conform, to become like what surrounds you. That's, how, that's why when you talk about, if you read like leadership books or business books or whatever, they're always talking about build a company with an excellent culture. And the reason is because if you can build a culture, you don't have to teach behavior. Because if you have a culture in your home that honors God, that um, is kingdom seeking, is loving and forgiving of each other, then your children adopt that. They, they, they go with the flow, so to speak. So the lesson here is to take that truth that humans become culture and to remind us that we aren't just to conform to the culture that surrounds us. So that's, this would be true for the, first, the early Christians in Rome uh, in the first century and also be true for 2018 Christians in the Western world. Right? There's things about our culture that are wonderful, but we should be discerning. And we should take the things that are good in our culture and adopt them and embrace them as Christians. And we should be discerning enough to reject the things in our culture that are not of God, that are not gospel-centered. So we should not simply conform to the culture. We should be transformed. So don't be like all every other light bulb. We want to be transformed. We want to be a better, newer, brighter light bulb uh, that's different. So just because everyone around us is shining this kind of light, doesn't mean we just adopt that kind of light. We want to be discerning what kind of light is the Spirit and the Word leading us to shine, and we shine that light. So we don't want to be—we don't want to just simply conform. We want to be people who are transformed by the Spirit. Okay, so that's Romans 12. Um, obviously, a lot more could be said about Romans 12 um, than we have time to say. So let's look at Romans 13. I think this is. This is a tough chapter, and I, I thought about different ways to kind of go into it. It's even kind of come up in like some of our like recent political debates because there's all, there's these phrases about submitting to authority and what does that mean in context of um, what unjust laws and just laws and what laws do you follow? And there's a lot that could be said there. And in the spirit of cowardice, I decided to skip all that and not and <laughs> and not touch it because I think Paul makes a a equally or maybe even more important point at the end of the chapter. So I want to talk about the law is fulfilled, the law being fulfilled through love. So we we think of these two concepts, law and love, as contradictory, right? So if you're a law Christian, then you're not loving people. And if you're loving people, then you're not that interested in doing what God says and being obedient. And I, I would say to Paul that that would make no sense, right? So to Paul, uh, the law is fulfilled by living a life of love, an orientation of love, both to God and to others. So here's a key verse. For the commandment, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Let's just stop right there. Like Those are big ones, and our orientation to those commandments is mostly, I think, 
about obedience and law and doing right. So you think about, you shall not commit adultery. You know, why do we not commit adultery? Well, because God said not to do it. And I think for most Christians, you grin and bear it and you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, right? You love your spouse, you love your wife, and you take joy in your spouse, and you don't, um, you don't forsake your spouse, and you don't wander outside the marriage bond. You should not murder. We don't murder because it's the wrong thing to do. So we're obedient. We don't murder. We don't steal. Why don't we steal? Because it's not our stuff. We keep our stuff. We don't take other people's stuff. Why don't we covet? Because it's, it's uh, wrong to want other people's stuff, to be jealous of what they have and wish we had it. So we, that's, that's a sin that we're not supposed to engage in. So we think this is all very like law-based. And the way we follow these commandments is we kind of orient ourselves, we develop the self-control, and we, we grin and bear it. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we do right. You know, that's kind of the orientation I feel when I read the Ten Commandments. But Paul says, these and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so Paul's saying the reason you don't commit adultery isn't because you have self-control and you're going to stay committed to your husband because it's the right thing to do. You don't commit adultery because you have a disposition of love towards your husband or wife. You don't, we don't murder not because... Um, it's God declares it wrong to kill another human, but, but because we love our fellow image bearers, and so we don't murder them. We don't steal because we don't want to take other people's stuff because we love them. We don't covet because we want to celebrate the good things in other people's lives uh, and not be jealous and want it for ourselves, right? So Paul says we follow these commandments not out of, we follow the law not out of an, an obligation or a, a burden, what Jesus would call a yoke, but we follow the law out of love. So the more you love, the more obedient you're going to be to the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you love someone, you're not going to do harm to them, at least intentionally. And uh, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So here's the gospel truth. I think, um, I think most of human nature can be described with like the, the, what's called the pendulum principle. So we almost always make a mistake on one, on one aspect. So maybe you, we live in a generation in the church where the, the primary error is being um, too legalistic. And so what's the next generation's reaction? The next generation's rea- reaction is to swing the pendulum the entire other direction and spend no time talking about obedience and holiness and emphasizing only uh, love and mercy, right? And so the truth is, that's an error as well. And so what does the next generation do? The next generation often swings the pendulum back the other direction and, and, and emphasizes to its detriment law and obedience and forgetting the other side. And so I think you can walk through... Um, I'm not going to do this this morning, but if you like walk through American presidents, I think you kind of see this. One president's too extreme on this issue, so what do they do? They make the equal and opposite mistake and elect the exact opposite of the previous president, and it just goes back and forth. And so I think a, a human psychology principle is the opposite of evil is not good, right? If you find something that you disagree with, just doing the opposite of that is not going to lead you, lead you to discernment and wisdom, right? Often the opposite of evil is also evil, and we're looking for a greater truth that kind of rises above this pendulum principle. So here's what, this is, this is my language, so if you disagree with it, you're certainly welcome to. This isn't the language that Paul used, but I think this is true. I think we're tempted to two equal and opposite theological sins. We can have Pharisee theology, and, the, and a Pharisee theology sees only law and no love. So they would see obedience to God, faithfulness in the church, uh, the um, 
thriving Christian life is a life that understands all the commandments in Scripture and follows them correctly. Okay, that's, that's Pharisee theology. And what I'll call hipster theology sees only love and no law. So hipster theology is going to see the thriving Christian life is a life that's oriented toward loving everyone without um, consideration of being transformed into obedience in your own life and inspiring your Christian brothers and sisters to be transformed as well. Right? And so I think both of these are really harmful. And I, you know, we could all go around the room and say, well, I've heard this preacher, he falls in this category, and this one falls in that category, and I came from this church that was like this, or that one was like this, or I, you know, I read this book that too, too far swayed this way. So I, you know, I'm not really prepared to say, like, what's the exact balance there? I'm not even sure we're supposed to balance. Like, we're not, maybe not supposed to find the middle of this pendulum. We're supposed to rise above that into something greater. And I think that's what Paul's saying here, is that a, a gospel-transformed mind sees love as the fulfillment of the law. So again, why do we not uh, commit adultery? We don't commit adultery not out of obligation, but out of love. right? And so that's the, the spirit-transforming disposition we want to have, is we love so much that we're obedient. As Paul says, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, Romans 14 and 15. Again, these are some tough chapters. I would say these are some chapters that, that I even find myself like kind of disagreeing with Paul a little bit. So I, th- I think that's a, an interesting perspective on your view of Scripture. What do you do when you come to a text that you don't exactly like feel good about? You're like, man, that's, that's not probably what I would have written there. I think the disposition we need to have is my mind is not fully transformed. I need to be more transformed into a, a Spirit-inspired mind so that I can be obedient to the text that God inspired Paul to write. So um, we'll just be brief here, but the theme of Romans 14 and 15 is showing grace to one another on non-essential issues. So Paul is now, he's waiting. This would be like if, um, if Eric was preaching on something like this. I can't think of an exact issue, but this would be the moment we'd all kind of get a little nervous. Like, oh, you're going to talk about that this morning. This is like the elephant in the room that's like causing tension in the church that we all kind of have agreed to not talk about so we can get along. So Paul's going to step on this issue of Jewish um, religious um, principles, routines, traditions, and how that interacts with Gentile Christians. So just to like take a half a step back, remember the context of Romans. So Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. The church in Rome, about two years before, under a, a decree of the Roman emperor, all the Jews were expelled from Rome. Okay, so you had a church that was mostly Jewish with a few Gentile Christians. The Jews are expelled from Rome. So now the church becomes what? a Gentile-dominant church, because all the Jews are expelled. So now you have a Gentile-dominant church. Then Nero comes into power and welcomes the Jews back into Rome. So now the Jews are returning to Rome with this predominantly Gentile Roman church that has, over the past two or three years, developed its own traditions and routines and culture, which is obviously much less Jewish, because the Jews are not a part of this culture. So now the Jews are trying to reintegrate into this church, and there's obviously tension, right? There's there's primary tension is around Jewish traditions like circumcision, um, eating unclean meat, and then following a Jewish religious holiday. So there's like a phrase in there like, you keep one day and think it's special and another one doesn't. What do you make of that? So that's the tension that Paul's going to kind of hit head on here. So here's a couple of verses in these two chapters that I think kind of um, maybe explain Paul's thinking on how to handle this. So, so again, this is a situation, you know, we got Dudley and me, and I 
am offended and think it's sinful to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. Okay, so that's the position in the church. Dudley, as a Gentile Christian, um, his conscience and his sincere belief is that a meat sacrifice to idols is meaningless, right? There, there are no other gods but one, and so sacrificing meat to a god that doesn't exist just means that he can buy that meat on discount now and feed his family, right? And so he's like, all these people getting all worked up about there's this problem with sacrificed meat. They're crazy. Yeah, sure. Give me two. You know, I'll, I'll take it. So Dudley didn't have a problem with it. I've got a huge problem with it. And so that's the, that's the issue that Paul's trying to interact here with. He says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. I think what he's saying there is Dudley and me, don't for the sake of food disrupt the unity that you have. So we ought to say at the start, we're going to be unified about this because this is not the most important thing, right? Paul has spent the last 13 chapters talking about the most important thing, and it's, it's not this. So don't, for, don't because of food forsake the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. So Paul, I think this is interesting because sometimes we don't do this on controversial issues, right? Um, we say, well, I'm not going to take, like I just did, right? There's a controversial issue. I think it's probably easier for me just to not take a position and I'll, and I'll move on because I want to talk about something else. But Paul didn't do that here. Paul takes a position. Paul agrees with Dudley. Paul says everything is indeed clean. So if you think that, that eating food is somehow sinful because it's sacrificed to idols, that's, that's incorrect. Eating food is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So Dudley, it's okay for you to eat that meat. But if you eating that meat is causing David to stumble and causing kind of spiritual religious confusion in my own life, then there's a problem there. That's wrong. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So Paul says it's probably good to refrain from eating meat or drinking wine if your brother's going to stumble by you eating meat or drinking wine. Then in 15 verse 1, he says, We who are strong, so this is Paul talking about what he called it. He has this paradigm of like the strong and the weak. So the strong kind of, again, um, in kind of our analogy with Dudley and me, Dudley's the strong one. He has the correct theological position. I'm the weak one. I have the weak theological position in our disagreement. So Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So that's not the way we live, right? <laughs> that's not the way I live. If, I, if someone has an old fuddy-duddy position on whatever issue, um, my tendency is to either convince them that I'm right or to kind of bulldoze over them and force them to do it my way. And we can think of all kinds of examples of how this plays out, right? It's not, it's a, in fact, I'm not even going to, name examples, but I think I'll just let the text speak for itself. But you can think of positions that you may or may not have on all kinds of issues. And I think Paul's saying something here is based on our preferences or what we desire or what we think is true, we need to be very careful to not cause division in the church about those kind of things. I think that's, that's the context there and how we would apply it. So this is a, a famous quote. This, is, this quote is attributed to like eight different people like it's one of those quotes like who really said it like someone said saint augustine said it first then guy said martin luther said it first you may if you're kind of you know in the church of christ tradition some people say alexander campbell said this first which i think is probably not true because it was like it's quoted people saying it a couple hundred years before campbell was born so he probably wasn't the originator um i think best i can tell on like a you know maybe 15 minute uh google 
search. I, I think there's this kind of esoteric Lutheran monk who worked under Martin Luther who didn't do anything else like famous or important but said this quote that a lot of people was like, man, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and so then it just became like this uh, kind of anthem for a bunch of different religious movements. So like the Presbyterian Church in, in, of America, this is like their theme. And then, like I said, in, in the Restoration Movement, the formation of the Church of Christ and the Christian Church and the Disciples of Christ, when, the, when that kind of broke off from mainline Protestantism, this was a kind of a... I don't say battle cry, that's not the right phrase, but this is a theme, an anthem that people would say. And I think it's really helpful. I think it really expresses what Paul's saying here. So, what's the quote? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So what is it? Well, let's, let's kind of unpack that. I, I think we all kind of know what it means, but I think it's, it's worth unpacking. So in, in essentials, unity. What does that mean? It means that while we do respect diversity of ideas on a whole bunch of, of issues, I think in a healthy church, there are things that we need to be unified on, right? So we're not going to have theological diversity on if Jesus is the Son of God, right? If, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian, right? We need to be unified on Jesus is the Son of God. We need to be unified on the fact that God exists, right? We're not going to have a Christian movement where there's... Um, theological ambiguity on the existence of God, on the divinity of Jesus, on the resurrection from the dead, I would say on the inspiration and authority of Scripture, right? There's, there's some things we just have to be unified on if we're going to be Christians, okay? But then, so this is what sometimes we call this like level one doctrines. If you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian, okay? Level two doctrines are, well, this is kind of a different context. The second phrase, in non-essentials, liberty. So I could come up on the board here and I could list, and we all know what they are, 10 or 15 things that uh, either in our movement or maybe Christianity at large, people have been arguing about for 5, 10, 15, 100, 200 years. Right? Grant talked about a lot of them last week, Romans 9 through 11. We got whole denominations based on how you read Romans 9 through 11. I mean, it's literally a huge million-member denomination split over how you read those three chapters. And so I think the, the message here is, I think there's probably a correct way to read Romans 9 through 11. I, I'm not, I don't want to be a, a relativist and say all truth is equal. I think there's a right way to read it. But it's not essential, right? You can be a Christian and, and view um, God's sovereignty as being individually dispensed to the Christian, or you can be a Christian and view God's sovereignty as being corporately dispensed, given to the church at large. Those are, are non-essential things, and in those we need to have liberty, Right? So I'm intentionally choosing topics that don't kind of impact our church, but I, I'm encouraging you to apply them to our church. So there, there are things that we can have opinions on that we can be free to say, hey, Pete, why don't you believe that? And I'll believe a little different, but we're still going to be brothers. Right? We're not going to split on non-essential things. And then all things charity. So above all, we're going to be unified on essentials. On non-essentials, we're going to give each other freedom, and we're going to love each other. We're not going to make these non-essentials that we disagree on cause distinction cause disagreement between us that's going to cause us not to act loving to each other. That's crazy and forgets the purpose of the first 12 chapters of Romans. Okay, last chapter, chapter 16. So this is a cool chapter. How much time do we have? Well, we're kind of out of time. So we'll um, maybe just make the main points. You ought to read it, though. He lists like all these names of people he knows in the church at Rome, which one thing I thought was cool is he knows these people. And then they'll like put these like little phrases about the different people and you think, oh, I wonder what that means or what, you know, wh why does he think that about this person? It's, it's neat. So that's the first half of chapter 16. So then he gives a final word on unity. 
he, he says in chapter 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So Paul, even at the very end of Romans, he's still saying, if people are causing division, if people are teaching something different than the gospel, causing division in the church, avoid those people. Those people are for themselves more than the gospel. And then he finishes with his famous doxology, uh, which I'll read here. If you, uh, This might be one you want to underline in your Bible. So Romans 16, this is 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's a, a great way, I think, to end a letter. And so I think that's why Paul chose to end it that way. So here's what I'd say is the truth. I'd wrap up chapter 16. The gospel is a mystery revealed and a prophecy fulfilled. So it's a truth about how we can be, as sinners, how can we be united to a holy God. That's the, the revelation of the mystery of the gospel. It's also a prophecy fulfilled. So I, I, I like the phrase, I'm a New Testament Christian. I am a New Testament Christian. But I'm a New Testament Christian because the New Testament is all about fulfilling the Old Testament, right? So we, we definitely want to be a class that doesn't ignore the first two-thirds of the Bible, right? The Old Testament is important because all the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. The God who has planned salvation history is all wise and deserves glory forevermore. So that's how Paul finishes um, finishes Romans. So it's just a masterpiece, right? It's the kind of thing um, that I, I think only a brilliant, uh, spirit-inspired Christian could write something that beautiful that flows. I mean, really covers three thousand years of history and Old Testament theology and wraps it all in uh, to us as new creations and life of Jesus, what, we're, what we are to believe and how we're to behave in just 16 chapters. So you can read it in like an hour. I'd really encourage you to do that because uh, you're going to get a lot more out of that than just sitting there and listening to me talk. So thanks so much for being with us these five weeks in Romans. Next week, we're going to start a three-week series called Following the King. And so the idea is going to be about discipleship. How do we today live as Christians? So we're going to talk about three things, how to read the Bible, Pete's going to talk about that next week. Then we're going to talk about how to pray, and Eric's going to talk about that the following week. And then we're going to finish up with how to make disciples. So I think if we read the Bible, we pray, we make disciples, that puts us a long way into following Jesus. So um, that's all i got. Thanks for being here.